Good morning. Somebody asked, or I said I was doing announcements this morning, and somebody was like, oh, are we playing pickleball again? And the answer is no, we are not. At some point. Um, have a lot of announcements to get through here, so we'll try to get through all of these here. First of all, Boys and Girls Club this week uh, is changing to its new time. Uh, the new time is from 6 to 7.15. Uh, it did not make it into the bulletin. So Boys and Girls Club for this Wednesday is from 6 to 7.15. Um, Hospitality Sunday is next Sunday, so there'll be no Sunday school there. Uh, there is a special collection next week to be taken for the Mercy Fund, so remember that. We also have a choir will be practicing after next week's Sunday's service, so remember that as well. Following the service today for the Sunday School Hour or the Adult Education Hour, here in the sanctuary at around 11 or so after you have your coffee and cookies, uh, back in here there's going to be a concert of prayer. So all are welcome. Kirk Harmon will be leading that. Uh, and even if you're not looking to actively pray, uh, it's going to be a great opportunity to be able to participate in prayer uh, and be able to help worship the Lord. Uh, so please, if you're able to attend that, that's here in the sanctuary. Um, also, the inquirer's class after the service will be meeting in Jeff's office. Um, and also a reminder for the ladies to RSVP for the beauty, talents, and values, oh my. Uh, there is a sign up at the mailbox counter. So uh, if you're looking to sign up for that, we ask that you sign up um, for that now. And also, if you are a visitor here, you can text welcome to the number up on the screen. Uh, and that way someone can reach out to you and you can find out the many different opportunities to be able to get involved here at Redeemer. So uh, please prepare your hearts for worship. Our God calls us to worship this morning from Psalm 100, verses 1 and 2. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. All who are able, please stand, and we're going to sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God.
Please join me in prayer. Father, God in heaven, we come to you, the creator and the sustainer of this whole universe, and we give you thanks that we can gather here and worship your name this morning. Lord, we ask that as we draw near to you with songs of praise and we open your word, Lord, we ask that you would draw near to each one of us. Um, draw us closer into your presence and that we would have a greater sense and understanding of who you are um, and that um, each of us, Lord, will be drawn closer into relationship with you as we worship this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to sing the song of praise, The Church is One Foundation. Please be seated. The scripture reading today is from Romans chapter 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If you caught up with me in the fellowship room after the service this morning and asked me, Kirk, are you ashamed of the gospel? I may be taken back a little bit by the question, but then I would say, of course not. I love the Lord. And then I may talk a little bit about when I was saved at 27 or the Bible studies I'm involved in, how much I like the life group, how much I love being involved in the prayer ministry. 
and do a lot of explaining. And then if you came back to me and said, when was the last time you talked to a stranger about the Lord? I would be quiet, just like I'm quiet now. It wasn't when I had a doctor's appointment earlier this week, and it was just the doctor and I in the room, and there was a lull in the conversation. I didn't talk about my treasure then. I don't know if he is saved. It wasn't when I got a haircut and the stylist asked me what I had going the rest of the day. And I had an opportunity to talk about my faith then. But no, I talked about uh, cleaning up the leaves in my yard. I don't know if she was saved. It wasn't even yesterday when I met with a stranger at 11 o'clock at the food court at Woodland Mall. I had a computer tablet for sale on Craigslist, and this was an individual that was interested in buying it for his son. So I met him at 11 o'clock, and the mall opens at 11, so there's not a lot of people there. It was just him and I. This was someone that I'll probably never see the rest of my life. I didn't tell him about the gospel. And I don't know if he is saved. Maybe then I would respond to you that, well, we're in a very hostile culture to the gospel, to Christians. And we need to remind ourselves that Paul wrote this book of Romans from prison in a culture that was very, very hostile to Christians. The culture has always been hostile to the gospel. I share these words today not to make anyone feel uncomfortable or guilty, but to acknowledge that we need to battle our inner comforts and desires to protect ourselves and to realize that there really is only one true place, and that's in the refuge of our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Let's take a few moments now to confess our sins, and I will follow up with a prayer of repentance. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know our thoughts, you know our struggles, and you still love us. That is an amazing thing. Help us to see ourselves as you see us, sinners saved by grace. Help us to step out of our comfort zones to share the amazing truths that you have opened our eyes to. Thank you for not treating us as we deserve. You are a good, holy, and perfect God. We give you all thanks in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen. The promise of pardon is from 1 John 1 through 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Please stand now as we sing most appropriately, He Will Keep You. seated. You are not surprised this morning that there are a number of people leading worship because both Pastor Jonathan and Pastor um, Dan are gone. And so here I am to lead us in a congregational prayer of thanksgiving. So would you join me in praying together? Holy Father, we are here this morning because there are many, many things that we have to give thanks for. We feel the cool breeze this morning and we walk out of our doors and we see the trees that have fallen and we see that you are turning summer into fall and fall into winter and the way that you describe the continual change year after year of the seasons is one day we experience in our lives and we are deeply grateful For not only the way in which the seasons are upheld by your hand, but they reflect the faithfulness that you possess. And we ask, Lord, that as we look over our lives, we would sense that faithfulness in many other places. Faithfulness in the work that we do. Faithfulness in our families. Faithfulness in the way that you have provided for us financially. And in the places in which we do not sense that, we give those over to you as well. And pray that in the moments in which we wonder 
what the next day or week or month or year will hold, that we will look back as the Israelites did in the Old Testament and recount the many, many places in which you have been faithful and see that you are a God who is good and a God who is kind and a God that never fails so that we and our children and generations to come will be able to stand on a Sunday morning like this and testify to the fact that you are a good, good God. Father, you have been, and you are, and you will always be faithful to your people. And now as we give of our tithes and our offerings, we give them to you. Not because we owe them to you as though you're exacting a tax from us, but we give them to you because you've given them to us and you've called us to be stewards of everything that we have. And the money that we place into the plates or the money that we give online is simply representative of our confession that you are Lord of everything that we possess. And so now we offer these things to you, not only this prayer, but also our offerings in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. There will now be an offering taken. Please give freely as the Lord has given to you.
Let's join together in a time of prayer together for our fellow congregation members, but also for our community and even people across the world. Would you join me in prayer? Father, this morning, we pray to you as the God who is not only ours, and not only the God of those who are around us and the God of our children, but you are also the God who has been at work in the world for many generations in the past. And we are thankful that today we can remember, along with churches, many, many churches across the world, an important historical event that took 505 years ago, where Reformation started in one small place and spread across Europe and then spread across really the world and continues to affect us today. And we thank you, Lord, for the way in which you used men and women in that time, even in very difficult circumstances, even being threatened, sometimes imprisoned and put in in harm's way. Some of them were even killed in order to preserve for us the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that this morning, as we bow together in this place, and not only is the opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth, a product of that reformation. But Lord, there are many ways in which our society as a whole has been radically affected by the return to the scriptures, the way in which human beings are viewed, the way in which our work is viewed, our view of government, the way that we view our responsibility and the relationship between church and state. Many of these things were affected by that reformation and we're here this morning to give thanks to you first and foremost that you are God that preserves and protects your church. And we thank you that we are the recipients of that heritage. And Father, to be faithful to that history is also to be faithful to your word. And we bow and pray for each other this morning as we think about the places in which that reformation is not only a memory for us, but it continues to guide us as we think about our calling in our world today. One of the things that the reformers spoke about was the need to continue to reform, not to simply be in a spot in which they said they had arrived, but continue to press for godliness in many areas of life. And we do that as well this morning. We begin in the place that is closest to our hearts. Many of us, maybe all of us uh, would confess that we need a reformation of the way in which we Cultivate our relationship with you. Reform the way that we view your word and our desire to read your word, to know it, to meditate on it, to memorize it. That would be more than us, more than for us a book that we look at on Sunday, but instead it would be our constant companion that we would be shaped not only in our quiet times, but our entire lives would be shaped by your word. Father, reform us. Reform the way that we view prayer is more than something that we just offer at the beginning or an end of a meal or when we're in trouble, but reform the way that we view the essential nature of prayer, that we cannot live without praying to you. We cannot live without expressing our dependence and our gratitude to you, that our lives are an expression of the reality that you are God and we need you. Lord, teach us to pray and reform our prayer lives. Father, reform our families. Reform our relationships. 
both in our families and with our friends and our communities. Father, reform us, for often we look at these relationships. It's just a place for us to receive from others what we believe we deserve. We become frustrated and sometimes angry when they don't give what we want to us. We don't believe we're respected or loved or cared for. Father, forgive us. Instead, reform us so that we would view each other in the way that our Savior does. That we have been called to love each other as Christ has loved us. Not necessarily in a permissive way or in a passive way, but seeking the growth and the holiness of those around us. Father, reform this. Reform for us as well. The people and the institution, the body that we are part of and we see so clearly here this morning. Reform us as a church. Reform us to greater conformity to your word. That in places in which we might be blind, you would open our eyes to see how we might serve you more effectively and faithfully. Reform the way that we view each other as church members. That we would be people of extreme gratitude. Looking at each other on a Sunday morning, calling each other, engaging in each other with each other's lives in small groups or Bible studies or friendships. And these would be people that we would treasure above any gift that we've received. Forgive us, Lord, for how often the possessions in our lives dominate our time. Instead of giving our time and our energy and even our money to invest in the lives of other people. Forgive us for the way in which we view our church as a place to simply receive. A place in which we want more and more for ourselves. We're frustrated when things don't happen the way that we want or in the timing that we believe they should. Father, reform our view of the church of Jesus Christ. That we would see that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And we are called as servants, blessed servants, to serve Him as He has saved us. Father, reform the way that we view ourselves and our communities. My heart is broken myself as I listen to my brother pray for the opportunities we have in this week. This past week to speak to others about the gospel and we've let them pass so easily. Father, forgive me for that. Instead, may we see ourselves in this community not simply to receive from it, but you've placed us here for the benefit of this community. If we weren't here, would our community even know, Lord? We pray that you would make us people who love the reality that we live in Ada or Grand Rapids or wherever it is that you've placed us. May our neighbors see us as those who are interested in their good, that we genuinely love them. Open the doors for us, Lord, that we would meet our neighbors, that we would not be hesitant to become engaged in their lives, that we would not simply ask them questions that are difficult, but they would see in us a genuine love that is willing to sacrifice for the benefit of others. Father, forgive the way that we treat our communities and reform us. And finally, Lord, we ask even more fundamentally that you reform the ways that we view our relationship with our Savior. That you would help us to see that He is first and foremost at the center of our lives. Father, we confess and ask your forgiveness for the many ways in which that is not true. That we make our lives all about what we're trying to attain. Maybe it's what we're trying to attain for our children. 
Maybe it's how much we're storing up for the future. None of which are inherently bad in themselves, but all of them can become idolatrous if Jesus is not at the center of what we're trying to do. Forgive us for not reveling in the gospel in the way that we ought. And when we lose sight of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we hunt all over for places and for things that will replace. Father, reform us that we would have such satisfaction in Jesus, that we would not demand from other places and things in life and other people what only Christ himself can supply. Father, thank you for the benefit of not just being a church in this time and in this community, but making us a church that is part of a much larger Christian body, both in this community and across the world and across time. You told the Apostle Peter that you would build your church and not even the gates of hell itself would prevail against it. Lord, we believe that. Help us in our unbelief. Father, in the confidence that comes from knowing that truth, we lay before you this morning those who are listed in our bulletin. We pray for the Kike family. We pray for your comfort for them, that it would continue. We rejoice with the Bakers as Everly continues to grow. We pray for her, for her continued growth, as well as health for her mom and strength for their entire family. We thank you for Zach, and we pray for his continued safety and effectiveness in Haiti. We pray for Mrs. Laura that you would comfort her, Lord, as she looks forward to treatment or maybe even not sure what that treatment will involve yet. Give her patience, Lord, and confidence in you. We pray for Gail Stahl, Lord. Be a constant presence to her, presence to her, that in every moment she would know your closeness and your comfort for her. And then we also pray as a brother's requested for a young woman whose father he met this week, who has nine children and is dying of cancer. Father, we pray for comfort for her and for her husband and her children and her family. We might not know her, have not seen her, but you do. And we pray for healing even at this last and desperate time. And we pray for others in our lives who may be in similar circumstances, weighed down by chronic illnesses, some of which will not be humanly speaking, resolved until the time of death. Lord, it just drives us to our knees and for our hearts to be dependent upon you and to see that this world is not all there is, but our Savior will return in the clouds of glory to remake all things right again. Father, in the meantime, while we wait for that to occur, bring us the hope of the gospel this morning. That we would hear very clearly where in your word we ought to see the comfort and the power of King Jesus. Father, we are so thankful that you've given us your word. Now open it to us. And may your spirit be here very powerfully to minister that gospel to our hearts. For we pray in the blessed name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. I really meant to say before I began that prayer that today is the day in many Protestant churches where we celebrate the Reformation. 505 years ago, about this time, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Castle. 
to explain his particular objections to the way in which the church was viewing the gospel and therefore itself in their world at that time. Now, we're a long time away from 1517, right? That's many generations. And yet the truth that Martin Luther sought to preserve, to recover really, is a truth that mattered not only for him, it also matters for us. And this morning I want to look at a passage that might not ordinarily be connected to the Reformation. Maybe it's a Sola Scriptura passage, or maybe it's a Christ alone passage, or the glory of God alone. But we're not going to look at one of those passages. We're going to turn to the end of Matthew chapter 11, to one of the passages that does play prominently in the history of the Reformation, and recovers a truth that I think is not only helpful, but really essential to our lives as Christians in this world. So from Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 25, I'd like to read verses 25 through 30. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These are the words of God. May he bless them in the preaching as in the hearing. This morning I begin by asking you to travel with me on a story of imagination. And it takes us back many, many years to the time in which there were kings and queens into a world, if you were a child, you may love to read about. Imagine a king, a powerful king, a king who reigned over his kingdom with righteousness and justice, and everyone loved this king. He was a marvelous king. Wherever he went, people cheered for him. He was that kind of king. But this king was king alone. He did not have a queen. You know, there are fairy tales that are based on this particular scenario. And then there are countries that send their daughters over to meet this king, hoping for some grand union to take place, for kingdoms to be consolidated and power to be built. Only that's not this story. One day, this king of this kingdom was riding around in his kingdom in his carriage, and he looked out the window of his carriage, and he saw, standing on the street corner... Not a woman who was finely dressed in beautiful apparel. No, he saw a woman who was very quickly in his eyes identified accurately as a prostitute. And he invites this woman into his carriage. And not just invites her into the carriage, but he comes to know her. And eventually over the passage of time, he comes to love her. And of all the crazy things and all these fairy tales from long, long ago, this king decides to marry this prostitute, and the prostitute becomes 
a queen. In the moment in which the ceremony takes place, they take vows to each other, and everyone hears the vows from the queen to the king and the king to the queen. In that moment, the king says to his queen, the woman who was the prostitute, you now possess as I possess my kingdom, my power, my glory. It all belongs to you. And I take upon myself all that you bring with you, your history of shame and suffering and abuse. My glory belongs to you, and I take from you all the suffering that you've endured. It's an interesting story. It's a story of transformation. Really a story of freedom if you think about it. Only what I want to tell you about this story this morning is that the prostitute is you. That is, according to Martin Luther, who tells this story in his book called The Christian's Freedom that was published very soon after he nailed those theses to the door in Wittenberg in 1517. And the reason he tells this story in this little book called The Christian's Freedom is because he wanted to impress upon every single Christian the amazing nature of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It is to more than to affirm basic and wonderful Christian truths. It's more to say that the, we need the Scripture alone, or we need Christ alone, or the glory of God alone. All great truths from the Reformation. No, Martin Luther wanted to say, in addition to all those truths, or maybe even more fundamental than all those truths, is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings freedom. And in this 505th anniversary of the Reformation of the Protestant Church, I want you to hear that truth very clearly. The gospel brings freedom. And I want you to hear specifically this idea from Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. That with Jesus you can turn from the fear that you sense. And with Jesus you can turn to the freedom that you seek. I want to explain that this morning from this passage, and there are really three ideas that I want to give to you. And the first is this, if you're taking notes, the first thing you need to hear about you, which ease that you can turn from your fear, which ease you can turn to the freedom that you seek, is that Paul lays down, not Paul, Matthew, <laughs> I've been preaching too much from Paul, Matthew lays down in the telling of the story the foundation for why that truth is so important. Let me give you that foundation in verses 25 through 27. The foundation for this truth, with Jesus you can turn from the fear you sense to the freedom you seek. If you look at the passage in verse 25, you'll notice it begins like this. It says, at that time, Jesus declared, literally it says replied, the reason it's translated as declared in the ESV is because if it was translated replied, you would ask yourself the question, replied to whom? And you'll notice in the previous verses, if you look through, there's no one that Jesus is replying to. A question has not been asked. But what happens in verse 25 is that Jesus is replying or responding not to a question who has been, that has been asked, not to a person. He is responding to a situation. And the situation he's responding to is the first part of this chapter, and I want to explain that to you. 
If you have your Bibles open, you'll notice the first 15 verses of this chapter is all about the proof that John the Baptist seeks that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. You can put yourself in John the Baptist's shoes. Somebody comes along and says, I'm the Messiah. You'd want to ask the question, really? How can I know that to be true? And Jesus says, here you go. Tell John that the Old Testament prophets are being fulfilled. They predicted the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind, the lame would walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. Go to John the Baptist and say, this is being fulfilled, so that John the Baptist hears. Can you imagine what the Old Testament prophets would have done when they heard that Jesus was fulfilling these claims? The king has come, the kingdom has arrived, praise the Lord. But what does verse 16 say? The response of the generation who actually watched these things happen is they did not receive this as good news. In fact, in Jesus' summary, they criticized John the Baptist instead of repenting at his message. And when Jesus came, they rejected him as the Messiah because he brought good news to tax collectors and sinners. They said, if you're the Messiah, you wouldn't hang around with those kinds of people. You would be want, to, want to be with the powerful, those who proclaim themselves to be morally good. Instead, you're seeking out the sinners. What kind of Messiah can you be? And so serious is Jesus' condemnation of that generation, the way they received him, the way they interpreted his good news and his engagement seeking to proclaim that gospel, the kingdom has arrived. So serious is Jesus' condemnation of that generation. Please listen carefully to this because it is genuinely shocking. He describes thoroughly pagan cities as far more likely to believe than these people did. He says if what happened here, it happened in Tyre and Sidon, notoriously pagan cities at that point, he says they would have repented. But not you people. He even points to notorious Sodom. If you're aware of Sodom in the Old Testament book of Genesis, it was a place that was so openly promiscuous and there was so much homosexuality as a form of that promiscuity that the entire city was smoked by God through fire from heaven. He was burned up. And Jesus says, according to Matthew, if Sodom had heard what you hear and see what you see, Sodom itself would have repented. But not you. You refuse. These people would not repent. They were stubborn. They would not listen. They would not turn. They were hard-hearted. Listen, friends, there is a special kind of rebellion that goes along with hearing, 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 and hearing again, really knowing the gospel and rejecting it. The best way I can illustrate it is imagine for those of you who appreciate metalworking, a steel that has been hardened because it's been heat treated. It becomes stronger and tougher, harder to bend or to work. That's what happens in a very negative way when you hear the gospel over and over. You take it in and refuse it. You reject it. And hearing the good news of Jesus and watching what he is doing and then turning away from him and rejection, even disgust, brings with it a particular kind of judgment. I want to be direct with you as I can be this morning. 
to hear the gospel over and over and reject it, according to Jesus in this passage, is worse than being the most openly and flamboyant sexual deviants. It is easier in the last day, Jesus says, for that person than it would be for the person who hears, 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 and refuses the gospel. Those are hard words, my friend, but I say them to you because they're found here. And I say to them because they ought to bring hope to those of us who struggle with sexual temptation. But really, and this is the point of Jesus, deep concern to those of us who are playing around with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you've put yourself in a very, very serious place. It's all to make this point. And this is what we read immediately before the passage I read for you in just a, mo- uh, just a, a few moments ago. This is what Jesus is responding to when it says he replied. Jesus is responding to this situation where the very last words in verse 24 are this, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Do you fear that? Do you hear those words and your first thought was, have I put myself in such a dangerous place that I'm on the road to condemnation? Do they bring to you this deep sense of fear and hesitancy? Are you overwhelmed by your sense of guilt and your desire that you would run from the presence of God? Do you fear The reason I make that point so strenuously was because at the time the Reformation occurred, the church specialized in fear. It was an overwhelming success in the church's eye to create a culture of such deep fear that people had nowhere to go but to the church and the things the church told them to do made it that inherently times they did what the church said it was never quite enough so do some more and if you do some more and more and more eventually not happy house living 500 years after the reformation continue to struggle with that as the view we have of christianity how this worked out in Margraphy. there are a number of them or one and a more recent one that show the reality of that fear in his life so as long as it because i have to tell all that is really necessary for you to appreciate what jesus says in verses 25 30 jesus is so closely to many of our hearts when we motivate people by that fear and here's the gospel this morning that you and explain it doesn't be motivated And that's what I want to explain to you. Look at verses 25, 26, and 27 now. With all of that in mind, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and under... And yield them through... God is according to one whom we ought to fear, one who holds us accountable for everything that we do, the things that other people can see and the things they can't. God knows them all. Honestly, stop the cover... But Jesus, I have the authority that comes from the Father. Try to distract yourself in literally 10,000 other ways. And you will find, as you are discovering, none of them find. 
work, you may lose payment in distraction, accumulation of possessions, in the approval of other people. You may look for it over and over and over again. But if you're looking, that could always be that negative. Jesus says the foundation of the escape from that fear. In God the Father, there's no fear of what not God. In fact, I would tell you in my estimation, the entire Reformation can be distilled to that point. It's really simple. And it is absolutely critical. With Jesus, you can turn from the fear that is not only found at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 11, and the fear that was so powerful at the time the Reformation occurred, but also the fear that operates in the hearts of men and women and children. With Jesus Christ, you can turn from the fear you sense to the freedom that you seek. But you need Jesus, according to verses 25, 26, and 27. Do you hear me? Jesus makes that point clear. So the natural question at this point is, well, how can I have this Jesus then? And that's where we read verses 8 and over for you. It says in verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There are a number of important phrases in these two verses, and I want to explain them. I want to explain them clearly but succinctly because they move us from, in order to find this freedom that I am hoping for, I need to have Jesus to how can you have this Jesus? What does this mean? Jesus has two commands in these verses. Come to me and take my yoke upon you. These are the two commands. When Jesus says in the first one of these verses, come to me, or head down, okay, ask the question, what does it mean? Where does that come from? If you search the Gospel of Matthew, you can pretty quickly understand what Jesus is talking about. One of the reasons we might be weary and heavy laden is God had told the people they needed complete obedience in order to God. It was obedience to the law of God plus those things that they said would protect the law of God. Later in the Gospel, Jesus condemns those people when love you. Now, even though you might know intellectually that is true, how often do you still have on how you guilt? In the same way that when you touch your finger to a, your finger said something's wrong. Your nervous system says, oh, that hurts. Pull back. Something's dysfunctional. This is the same good in the range. Something is. But if guilt becomes the motivator, your children, and people, or with others they feel they can be free with. And then all that layer ripped themselves itself. And that's what was happening in the religious culture at the time in which Jesus was writing. And Jesus says, but when you come to me, I know you. They feel that guilt. That's the spirit at work. But now what comes after the guilt? Jesus says, me, come to me, all those who are weary and have wanted. And that's, my friend, what you can have. And you can have it now. Jesus goes on to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Now, the first thought that come to your mind, comes to your mind might be the yoke of oxen. You needed two of them. Maybe you've gone to like a living histories farm. I used to do that with my children when they were younger. I lament the fact they're not young enough to do that anymore. 
But you'd see this ox's yoke. It's a big thing made out of wood. One ox goes here, another one goes here, and they have to pull together. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The yoke Jesus is referring to, you might find in a different place in that living history farm. You would find it where someone had to go down to a well. They had to pull up the water from the well, dump it in buckets, and carry it back to wherever they went. There would be a yoke. They'd lay across their shoulders. You could put a bucket on each side. It was heavy, and it hurt some, but it made the job tolerable. The kind of is referring to. He's not placing a heavy burden upon you. It's not the animal yoke. He's not trying to just get something from you. He's not just trying to make you productive. It's an implement intended to help. Life is difficult. There's no doubt about it. Jesus is not avoiding that reality. But he is saying the yoke that I lay upon you is a yoke in which you will work and be busy but it is a yoke that I give you so that as you do it, you have my help. He even goes so far as to say the burden is light. That's not to take away the burden. But some of you might remember the times when you worked out, maybe you worked out very diligently and you started your bench press at 50 pounds and after working out for six months, you could bench press 225 And then someone brings the bar over and says, here, try the 50 pounds again. You're like, no problem, watch this. Jesus is referring to the lightness of a burden that occurs as you walk with him. It's not to say there is no burden. It's only to say that the burden becomes lighter as you walk with him. To put it all in a nice package with a bow, when you walk with Jesus, it is not as though the difficulties are all of a sudden gone. It is to say that you're walking with a Savior who is distinctively different than those religious leaders. The religious leaders would say to you, figure it out when you don't feel guilty. Jesus says, I'm coming to you to give you whole life peace and then calling you to follow me in a way that you will bear burden but I will make it tolerable. Is there anyone here this morning who feels like you're in the edge of that burden being tolerable? (laughs) You think to yourself, I am the camel and one more straw is going to break the camel's back. You know that your Savior knows exactly how much you can bear. And what He has brought into your life is not for your ill, it's not to harm you, it's not to hurt you. It's to bring you in a walk after him that is closer to conform you to the image that he possesses. It is tended for good. Notice he says that about his own character. He says in verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. You know what Jesus is saying in those verses? He is a kind of character that's winsome to those who are looking for help. That's who our Jesus is. For all the authorities that would simply point out to you everything that you've done wrong and how much more you need to do, Jesus says, that's not me. That's not me. I have a loneliness of spirit. There's a humility in me. It's not to say he's not powerful and great. No, he said in previous verses, the Father has given me all things. I have the authority of the Father. But he doesn't come to you pounding you. He comes to you beckoning you winning you, 
bringing you alongside, that you would see the gentleness of your Savior. There's so many more things I'd like to say about that this morning, but there's one more thing that I must say. The foundation of this passage, the foundation of this passage is that you cannot have this peace apart from Jesus Christ. That's the first three verses of this section. That's what Jesus is emphasizing. The invitation comes in verses 28 and 29. Come, bear the yoke. But then verse 30 lays out the expectation, the foundation, the invitation, and now the expectation. And let me read that for you again. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, what's interesting about this is later on in 1 John chapter 3, the writer, I think perhaps, and I want to be careful about saying this, but it's very likely the writer may have considered Matthew chapter 11 in writing these verses at the beginning of John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has that hope in Himself purifies Himself as He is pure. You know what John is reflecting on? The truth that your Savior loves you deeply. And the expectation in verse 30 is that love will make the yoke of the weight of your life easy and your burden is light. At the very heart of Christianity is the incarnation. Every other religion says, here are a list of things to do, meet this standard. And you'll be a good Islamic person. You'll be a good Jewish person. You'll be a good Buddhist. You'll be a good Shintoist. Follow the list of the commands. Be obedient. But the nature of the gospel, the grace of the gospel is precisely the opposite. It recognizes the reality we are failures who have no hope in ourselves. And along comes Jesus who is incarnate. He comes into our world to be in our place to meet the demand that we fail to meet. So that when we read in verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We don't hear it as another command. We hear it as an expectation. That with the incarnation of Jesus Christ, this one, this one who speaks in Matthew chapter 11, the burdens of life and the calling to be after Jesus Christ, to assume His nature and His character is not a heavy burden. Instead, it will seem light. Maybe that's not where you are this morning. Maybe when you hear me say that, you think to yourself, I'm not really sure what that means. Well, the calling to you is to discover it. Matthew explains it. The Gospels are full of it. There are a lot of people around you who would love to explain that truth. Maybe you're in the middle of it today. You say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't feel like this yoke is easy. The burden is light. I feel a lot of pressure and weight and difficulty. That's also the Spirit speaking to you, my friend, to show you that the love of Jesus is sufficient for where He has called you to. Your calling is not simply to do more and be different. 
is to know and to press into the one is so different than the religious leaders who are criticized at the beginning of Matthew 11. Or maybe some of us have come to the point where we could stand and say with confidence, I know after many years of living with Jesus Christ, the Reformation truth that with Jesus there is freedom is actually true. I feel it. I know it. The Lord has brought me to a place where that is true. Here's what I want to tell you. Wherever this passage meets you, it does not come with condemnation. It comes with a beckoning call. In fact, I am sure if Martin Luther were standing before you this morning, he would want me to say this. The legacy of the Reformation was not simply getting some doctrines right. We praise the Lord. That happened. That was necessary and essential for the future of the church. But the legacy of the Reformation is not simply in theological precision. The legacy of the Reformation is in this. And I leave you with it this morning. With Jesus, you can turn from the fear you sense to the freedom that you seek. Let's pray. Father, there are many things that come to mind after hearing a passage like this proclaimed. Maybe it is our failures. Maybe it is our frustrations. Maybe it is that longing in our soul for something that we have not yet possessed. And so we call upon you as a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a triune God, that each one of you would be active in our hearts as we reflect on these truths. Father, we pray that you would show your power for those of us who doubt that it is possible that things could be different. Show us that power. Jesus, you have said that you're ruling from the right hand of the Father for the sake of your church. Lord, bring into our lives people and the right words and the passages of Scripture that we need to know to experience that freedom. And Holy Spirit, this is your age. This is the time in which you are doing your great work. And I pray for each person who is here, in whatever stage of Christian growth, or even if they don't know Christ, Lord, you're able to do even more than we ask or imagine by your power in each one of our hearts. And we pray that the hope that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ would be a hope that translates into that freedom from fear that was so essential to Martin Luther and then began to, began to characterize the Reformation as a whole. Father, make us children of that great legacy and particularly children of the Word as it reflects that legacy. For we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. We have a fantastic song to sing in response to this passage. Would you stand with me and let's sing and confess together and to each other the perfect wisdom of our God.
Let me encourage you, as was announced, to come back here after you get your coffee and cookies to spend some time praying. Um, also, just to remind you that uh, last Sunday I was sick. That's why the uh, inquirer's class did not meet. If you didn't get that message, I'm sorry. But if you're interested in it this morning, after you get the coffee and cookies, my office, which is in the office suite off to the left from this uh, room, will be meeting there to talk about this church. Now these important words as you leave worship. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. Amen.